0: the Old Testament is someone who's hearing from God and attending to what it is that God is saying and then sharing that with other people. And so oftentimes this came in the form of words of rebuke, words of correction, words of judgment. God had things that he wanted to attend to and speak to about people and to nations and that were misaligned. And he wanted to say, listen, You gotta pay attention and get back into a place where you're in right relationship with me and with others. And so today we're gonna look at two stories in that vein. Two stories uh, that involve a little bit of backstory or context setting. And we're going to have to look back before uh, the prophet Elisha. Back into the story of Elijah. Who was the prophet before him in Israel. To uh, get a sense of what's going on. So there might be a lot of unfamiliar names that we'll refresh ourselves on. So that's what we have this board game here for a little bit later. Where each color will help us remember a character from that. Uh, And then we'll kind of charge on through there. So... If you look at the book of 2 Kings, and this is where we actually finished our series last summer. And the book of 2 Kings opens in chapter two with a really dramatic incident. Uh, And it's the transition from Elijah the prophet to Elisha the prophet. And Elisha has been tapped on the shoulder many years before this. He was a farmer. And Elijah came along to him and said, all right, God said you're going to be the next prophet here in Israel. And so he's mentored him for many years, and they've worked together, and now it's time for Elijah to hand the prophetic mantle to Elisha, figuratively and in every other way. And so it's this dramatic scene where Elijah is actually taken up to heaven in a whirlwind accompanied by... Uh, that what appear appeared to Elisha as chariots and horses of fire, which symbolizes the presence and the power of uh, the angelic armies of God, the very heavenly hosts. And Elisha has asked for something very specific from God before this. And he said, you know, Elijah, before you go, I'm wondering if I could receive from God a double portion of authority and power that God has given to you which is a really big ask because Elijah had significant authority and power, showdown with the prophets of Baal, spoken uh, with uh, authority to kings and leaders and incredibly miraculous things uh, that accompanied Elijah's ministry, raising people from the dead, provision for famine, end of famine, like just incredible stuff. And Elisha says, I want to do twice as much as Elijah, who's one of the most significant prophetic figures in the Old Testament, says, I want a double portion of that. And Elijah says to him just before he leaves, dude, that is a tall order. But here's how you'll know that God has answered that request. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you'll know that God has said yes to that. And in fact, Elisha does see Elijah As He's taken up into heaven and this is just an artistic rendition of the cloak the mantle falling and Elisha takes up that mantle literally and figuratively. He goes to the Jordan River and he says where's the God of Elijah and he strikes the water and the water parts just hearkening back to the people of Israel when they crossed the river at Jordan and God's power provided that way for them through that. And he walks through the Jordan River and he begins his prophetic ministry. And intriguingly, we actually do have in Second Kings twice the amount of miracles recorded that Elisha does as Elijah did. And yet they're very, very different in scope and in nature. And some of them at first brush are just plain weird, unusual, and strange as the series title suggests. So we're going to look at two of those stories today and they both involve strange deaths. And so our first story happens right after uh, the miraculous uh, instant at Jericho that Pastor Mike led us through last weekend where Elisha uh, healed the city's water supply. Miraculously, God demonstrated his grace and provision. And this is probably, for my money, in 2 Kings chapter 2, starting at verse 23, it's probably the strangest three verses in the Old Testament. It's just a really brief story that is just bizarre. So I'll read the text for us. The, uh, it'll come up on the side screens and uh, it goes like this starting in verse 23 reading from the New Living Translation Elisha left Jericho miracle he just performed and he went up to Bethel as he was walking along the road a group of boys or young men from the town began mocking and making fun of him go away baldy they chanted go away baldy and Elisha turned around looked at them he cursed them in the name of God two bears came out of the woods mauled 42 of them And from there, Elisha went to Mount Carmel and finally returned to Samaria. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. (laughs) So, (laughs) Elisha and the bears is just one of those stories in the Bible that you're like, what in the world is going on here? Like, how? It just is, it's a little bit, what just happened? Um, even the artist, like Elisha's face here is like, oh, I'm not sure what's going on. Um, but really, like really, a group of youth tease a guy a little bit about like being follically challenged and bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of them? Really? That just seems like one of those examples that people would marshal in their case to say like, well, I told you, God was just vindictive, mean, and angry. He's just sitting up in heaven waiting for you to do something wrong and then he's going to strike you with a lightning bolt or bears and and he just is this just how god is but i think we have to push a little bit further and think carefully about this instance and think a little bit about what's going on here and see what do we know about god's character what do we know about justice what do we know about mercy and what do we what do we make of this instance well one of the first things that we have to wrestle with is um, things that that we're not super interested in in the text and that is the author is signaling something to us of second kings uh, about the geography of this incident the location is very important and specific it happens at Bethel and Bethel is the second most mentioned city in the old testament And it's significant because Bethel actually starts off as a place where people meet God. It's it's an incredibly important beginning. But over time, Bethel actually becomes the center of anti-God worship and idolatry in the nation of Israel. It becomes the place of the most staunch opposition to God. This is the place where uh, one of the kings, Jeroboam, sets up the, uh, a golden calf with the express purpose of preventing people from going to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. This is like the heartland of opposition to God. It's the very center of uh, the place where all of the kind of destructive idolatry uh, spreads out from in the nation of Israel. And so Bethel becomes a symbol or a a cue for us in the text which we miss, we just think it's a geographic reference, but the author is saying something to us about these this incident and the character and the nature of what's happening here. And these young men, they're likely not kids, they're likely young adults are named as being from or being a part of that city. They're a part of all the stuff that happens in that city. That means that these young men have grown up with and have carried through their lives a defiant opposition to God. It's not as if they woke up that morning, casually happened upon Elisha, said a few unkind things, and then boom, the bears got them. We're supposed to read into this story, not just... Uh, A sense of of the incident itself, but a sense of patterned, repeated, non-passive resistance to God and God's work, a sense of active opposition. Really, what the author wants us to understand is that these young men are not actually mocking Elisha. They are mocking God by attempting to discredit God's activity. In fact, some scholars suggest that these young men were a group of people that traveled around and wherever prophetic ministry was happening, they were like the hecklers. And they were going to go and say, oh, that didn't really just happen. Oh, no, no, you can't believe any of that stuff about the one true God. Like, that's just rubbish. Don't, don't do any of that. Don't follow God at all. And they, um, the thing that, to note here, too, is that go up, when they use this language is actually a sarcastic taunt of what has just happened to the prophet Elijah. When it uses the words to describe what's happening to Elijah as he ascends to heaven, he's going up. He's getting out of here. And these young men pick up on this and they say, oh yeah, sure, that's what happened. I'm real confident he just went up to heaven, right, for sure. So the boys here are not just making fun of Elisha being follically challenged or bald. They're not making fun of his lack of hair. They're making fun of and mocking the prophetic office and they're making fun of and disdaining the work of God. When they say even like baldy, they're saying, oh, you have no covering. You have no prophetic mantle. You're not really a prophet. You're just some old dude with no authority, no wisdom, no power from God. And so it's much more sinister than we just sort of read in these few verses. They're saying, oh, yeah, right. God exists? I don't think so. God does stuff. He actually cares about and interacts with people? No, 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 not possible at all. Oh, sure, the other dude went away somewhere. Yeah, right, he did. Why don't you go away somewhere too, man? We don't want any God stuff going on here in our city. You can take all your religion and your God talk with you and get out of here. And they persist and they persist and they persist in this kind of taunting And so their opposition here is not just sort of a gentle tease over someone's physical condition. They are actively, purposefully, repeatedly resisting God and his work in the world. And so it's at that point that Elisha says, God will deal with you. You need to stop your systemic and persistent opposition to almighty God or God will deal with you in God's way and God's time. And so God chooses to. Two bears come out of the woods, maul 42 of them. We don't know if they die or if they live, but I have never been toe to toe with a bear. I have never had a bear come out of the woods and surprise me. I like to keep a very safe distance from bears. Uh, And so it's quite a, an event that happens So uh, this last week, uh, when I was at camp, we play a game at camp, and it's called Predator and Prey. So we sort of organize the food chain on Vancouver Island. You can be a mouse, which is the lowest, and then deers, deers chase the mice, then you can be a wolf, then you can be a bear, is the next one. So some of the kids, I was a bear, and so you're supposed to chase everybody around, it's kind of like tag. Um, And so one of the kids asked me, okay, so there's like a lot of us, what do you call a group of bears, and I was actually quite at a loss as to what a group of bears was called and being out in the middle of nowhere where there's no internet, I was like, I'm not sure. Is it a herd, a pack, a team, or a sleuth? What do you think? How many for a herd, a herd of bears? No, no one for a herd of bears. How many for a pack of bears? Okay, a few for a pack of bears. How many for a team of bears? A few, how many for a sleuth of bears? Okay. All right. It is actually a sleuth of bears, or you can also call them a sloth of bears. I just call any more than one bear is like trouble. Like a group of bears is trouble. I, I have no other name for it other than that. But you have learned something new today that a group of bears is called a sleuth. So the other thing that's happening here in this text. Is that there's some there's some foreshadowing coming. We're to understand that something else is going to happen in the text. And we'll see actually as we get to chapter 10 that these 42 youth actually mirror the 42 sons of Ahab who were killed by Jehu. And they were killed because of their wickedness and idolatry and the continuous generational pattern of sinning and opposing God. And so Elisha's actions against this group of young men should be viewed in the context of the larger context of a protracted struggle between God and between those who oppose God. And it's a struggle that that continues uh, through history, continues down to this day, I've been reading uh, some biographies uh, over the course of this year, and I was just finished reading this week a biography of Charles Finney. And as revivals would break out under Finney's preaching, there would be those who opposed Finney and said, oh, this, is, this is rubbish. In fact, quite often it was, it was those in spiritual or pastoral leadership because he didn't do things the way that they wanted them done. He'd conducted revivals in a totally different way of calling directly to people to come to saving faith. And at one point, Finney's in this town and he prays and says, God, you need to stop the opposition. And the pastor of the largest church in the town gets sick and dies in a week. And Finney's like, all right, I'm just leaving that in the Lord's hands. I didn't pray that he would die, <laughs> but I prayed that the opposition would stop. And, and it did. And I suspect that might be, something of why this strange story is in the Bible. Because it's a very, very dangerous thing when we put ourselves in a place of judgment over the work and the ways of Almighty God. And here's what I mean by that. For me, when I was looking at this and wrestling with this and thinking about it, it just struck me that these young men thought that they had set themselves up as judge and jury and they thought they knew everything. And sometimes I find myself tempted to play that role. I look at a report of God at work overseas, and I immediately become skeptical and think to myself, yeah, right, you know, those probably are probably just, people are probably just mixing in their own religious ideals with Christianity. That's not a revival. That's just hype from the missions field to raise money. Or I hear about another church growing in our uh, area, and it can be tempting to say things like, well, they're probably growing because they're watering down the gospel over there. I mean, God's not really at work, is he? Or you look at a miracle where God's brought healing and think, well, it probably just was going to happen anyways with the advances in medical technology and science. There's no way God was actually answering that prayer, was he? Or we can look at it and say, ooh, we've raised a lot of money If we want to see a facility in our neighborhood and say, I don't think God's big enough to make something like that happen, is he? See, friend, whenever you find yourself or whenever I find myself tempted to sit in judgment over the ways in which God works and say things like, God could never do it that way, then or the people that God chooses to do his work or the places where God has work. You need to be very, very careful because there are bears in that area. Be bear aware, (laughs) which means check your attitude. Think carefully. You and I need to adopt a posture of humility and awe and wonder instead of saying to God, go away. I don't want you here. I don't think you work like that in in my life in this church, in other places. And we've talked before, and this story is a reminder again, that if you continue to persist in that attitude and that action, if you say, God, go away. I don't want anything to do with you. Eventually, God will give you exactly what you ask for, and you will find yourself in the most dangerous place in the entire universe, a place completely devoid of God's presence. So, be careful in sitting in judgment and saying, oh, God doesn't work this way, or God doesn't use those types of people, or God doesn't do it that. The longer I find myself following Jesus, the more I have room for mystery, and the more I have grace for people who are experiencing God very differently than I am. And I'm more willing to say, you know, if God's in that, then let's wait and watch for fruit. Let's not rush in to judge and say, well, you can't be doing it there or would those people are in that way. So that's our first story. Be bear aware. (laughs) Our second story is also a story of judgment and justice that also involves animals, and also involves some backstory. So we have to set the stage for us here. And we're going to turn our focus now to one of the most wicked people in the entirety of Scripture. Her name was Jezebel, and she was the queen during the time of Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings 21-25 says, No one else so completely sold themselves to wickedness and evil as did Jezebel. No one else killed as many prophets of God as Jezebel did. And uh, just one story that exemplifies this is the story of Naboth's vineyard from 1 Kings chapter 21. Naboth, and we covered this last uh, summer in our teaching series, Naboth was a man who had a vineyard right next to the palace where Jezebel and her husband Ahab lived. And the king wanted to plant a vegetable garden in this area because it was convenient for them. They didn't have to walk further to get their veggies. So he says to Naboth, Naboth, I'm going to buy you out. I got a big chunk of change here. Or if you would prefer, maybe I'll give you a nicer vineyard somewhere else. Like I just need this one because of the proximity to the palace. And Naboth says, thank you so much, king. This is very appreciated. Uh, So kind of you. However, this vineyard has been in my family for generations. I just really would respectfully like to hang on to it. And the king goes home and sulks because he can't get what he wants. And Jezebel says, what are you doing? You're the king. I will look after this for you. So she has Naboth murdered so that the vineyard becomes theirs and they can plant their cucumbers and squash and whatever else they wanted to plant in there. So she commits murder, let's just be clear, just so she can have a convenient place for a vegetable garden. Like, this is not a a nice woman at all. And so Jezebel goes on through this process, and God sends the prophet Elijah with a message to Jezebel. And after they have stolen Naboth's vineyard by murder and extortion, then Elisha says, I have come because you have so sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. Verse 21 of 1 Kings 21. Now the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I'm going to consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants slave and free alike, anywhere they go in Israel. I'm gonna destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Basha, son of Ahijah, for you have made me very angry and you've led Israel into sin. And specifically a prophetic word regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat your body at the, this plot of land in Jezreel. So this is Elijah, and he has given this prophetic word. So have you ever played the board game Risk? How many of you have played the board game Risk? All right, so Risk is about like territorial conquest, right? The object of Risk is to take over Your enemy's territory. And so we already have an example of this. We're going to have Jezebel's forces played by the red team here in the center because they have the most. And these are Naboth's nice vineyard immediately adjacent to the palace. So Jezebel and Ahab have already decided they're going in and they're just going to take over all of Naboth's vineyard. And they uh, didn't even roll the dice to do this. They just decided that they were going to do it. And so now Naboth is dead and gone and they have his vineyard so they already are ahead in the game so God's working though to fulfill this promise that Jezebel is actually not going to win this game of risk so the prophet Elisha now many years later sets in motion a chain of events that is ultimately going to result in the fall of Jezebel who will represent with this gold piece here so On the very plot of land, it's going to happen, that she stole from Naboth. So turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. And Elisha tells a young prophet that uh, he has a mission. He's supposed to go and he's supposed to anoint Jehu, who's the commander of uh, Jezebel's army. This prophet is supposed to anoint Jehu as the new king of Israel. Now, Jehu's the commander of the army, but he's not next in line for the throne. That would pass through a family line, so it should be one of Jezebel's sons who becomes the next king. But this is not actually going to happen. Jehu is uh, going to become the next king. So Jehu will represent Jehu by Team Blue because he's not really a part of the royal family, but he's in charge of the army. So we've got a little army amassed behind him here. So this prophet uh, Elijah says, "I need you to go and give this prophetic word, and then I need you to run away as fast as you possibly can." <laughs> the prophet's like, "Okay, uh, sign me up, I guess, for this job." So. The uh, prophet comes, finds Jehu, and says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says in verse six of 2 Kings nine. You are to destroy the family of Ahab. That's a prophetic word uh, that was given at the vineyard. In this way, I will avenge the murder of all of my prophets and I will destroy uh, who were killed by Jezebel. The entire family of Ahab and Jezebel must be wiped out. I'm gonna destroy every one of his male descendants, slave and free alike anywhere in Israel. I'm gonna destroy the family of Ahab as I destroyed the families of Jeroboam and Basha. And dogs will eat Ahab's wife Jezebel on the plot of land in Jezreel, and no one will bury her. And then the young <laughs> the Bible says, the young prophet opened the door and he ran. <laughs> Because he knows, oh, this is really bad. It's going to get really bad really, really fast. So people around Jehu ask him, hey, Jehu, what did that young prophet want? And Jehu says, oh, you know, those prophets are always talking about crazy stuff. They're like, "Uh, really? He must have come with a mission, like you're, you, you look a little different. Your head is kind of wet from the oil that he dripped over you. What did he say? And finally, Jay's like, well, all right. He told me I was gonna be the next king of Israel. And they're like, we could get behind that. We would support you in that. So they have a little coronation ceremony and say, all right, you're the next king of Israel. So they all kind of fall in line behind their commander. And then Jehu says, all right, we got a coup to go for now. Uh, That prophet uh, gave me a prophetic word. I'm supposed to go and I'm supposed to take out everybody that is uh, in line for the throne. And so he comes up and he gets in his chair and he starts to ride and he starts to ride and he starts to ride. Now, remember, Jehu's the king of uh, he is the, the general of the armies. So like not unusual for him to come on a mission to the palace. So he starts to ride toward the palace. And uh, it so happens that the uh, king of Israel and some of his army, or king of Judah rather, is visiting uh, Ahab over here. So they haven't taken over. They're just kind of chumming because they just went into a battle together. Uh, that God actually specifically told the king of Judah, do not go into this. You do not have a dog in this fight. And the king of Jews is like, whatever, I'm going to go and help my buddy. We'll go to war together. It did not turn out well for them. Uh, and so here comes Jehu. He's coming. And so the kings come out to meet Jehu. And they're like, oh, Jehu, how's it going? You know, how, um, we just came from this battle. It didn't go super well for us. Have you got any news from the battle that you are working on? And um, they ride out to meet him. And they actually meet him right at the plot of land where Naboth's vineyard is. And so Jehu and all of his troops are kind of coming along behind him and the kings have come out because they think he's coming in peace. They've kind of left their armies at the back. And then Jehu says to them, they say, do you come in peace? And Jehu says, how can there be peace in the land of Israel so long as the idolatry and witchcraft of Jezebel are all around us? It is about this time that the two kings realize they're in big trouble. And so they turn around and they start to run away as fast as they can. But Jehu is a crazy good chariot driver and he draws his bow and his arrow and he actually fires and he strikes the king of Israel and he dies and he strikes the king of Judah and he kind of limps home wounded and then they all run away back to Judah and eventually he dies as well. But he dies, the king of Israel dies right around on the plot where Naboth's vineyard was. And Jehu actually says to his officer, just throw him in the plot of land that belonged to Naboth. Do you remember when we were riding along and the Lord pronounced this message against him? And so he's dead and Jehu and his forces keep riding into the city. So now we pick up the story in chapter nine, verses 30 to 37. Because Jehu's on a mission Jezebel is the queen mother, and she hears that Jehu has come to Jezreel. And so she paints her eyelid, and he fixes her hair, and sits at the window. She's going on a charm offensive. Jehu enters the gates of the palace, and she shouts to him, "'Have you come in peace, you murderer? You're just like Zimri,' another character who murdered his master. And then Jez Jehu asks for a, a team of people to support and assist him in this. And so he says, all right, if you're on my side, looked up in the window and saw her and shouted, who is on my side? And two of the eunuchs who worked at the palace looked out at him and Jehu says, throw her down. And so they do, they, threw, they throw her out the window And her blood splatters against the wall and on the horses. And then Jehu tramples her body under the horse's hooves. And then Jehu goes into the palace and he eats and drinks. And afterwards, he says, "Mm, Someone should go out and bury that cursed woman. I mean, I guess she is the daughter of a king. But when they go out to bury her, they find only her skull and her feet and her hands. And when they return, they tell Jehu this. And Jehu says, all right, this fulfills the message of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Elijah. At this plot of land in Jezreel, the dogs will eat Jezebel's body and her remains will be scattered like dung on the plot in the land of Jezreel. So no one will be able to recognize her. So we have the dogs and they're all coming and they're eating. They look cute, but just don't be, you know, they're, don't be uh, lulled. They're, they're just like totally all over Jezebel and her forces. I guess that's not really a dog. <laughs> oh, this was one of the bears too. There we go. All right. So now, again, we have this bizarre death where she is thrown from uh, an upper story window and then dogs come and eat her lick up her blood. I was going to bring my dog Poppy to church this morning to illustrate the dogs will eat absolutely anything, but I decided against it. Um, Yeah, exactly. There you go. But we have to pause again and ask ourselves the question, why is this story in the Bible? Like what is, what are we to learn or take away from something like this? I think for me, when I think about this story it builds on the previous story of God's judgment and his justice. And I think for me, when I look at this, my personal takeaway is that we have to attend to the fact that no one, but no one, but no one, can outrun God's judgment. You will reap what you sow. Jezebel, the most wicked evil and not very nice person in the Old Testament is, has sown wickedness for years and years and years and years. They're in charge of all of the political and economic systems. It's not like a modern democracy where there's protests in the street and you can overthrow your government. This is not happening. And they used all of those things for their personal gain and to suppress the true worship of God. And intentionally, the scripture says, they they made a purposeful decision in their hearts to lead an entire nation away from a relationship with the living God. And it may have seemed like no one had the capacity to resist or stand up to them because they kind of owned and managed the board. They controlled or they thought they controlled all of the outcomes. But it's simply not true. True. We've sang already this morning, God rules over the nations and the kingdoms of the earth and the leaders. And God, in an ultimate sense, will ensure that justice is done. It may look like the Psalms are full of of those cries that we heard of just thinking, oh, the wicked are getting ahead. The wicked are outrunning the righteous. They're outrunning God's judgment and justice. Like they're just getting away with anything. And it may look like that. But the scriptures remind us time and time again, no one can outrun or stand above or sneak out from underneath the justice of God. You will reap what you sow. Jezebel got away with murder for a long, long, long time, but ultimately she paid for her crimes. You cannot outplay or outmaneuver God. God always gets the final move. He will not be mocked. So what does it mean for you and for me? Well, I think two things. One is When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, that line that says, God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. One of the expressions of that prayer or one of the iterations of that is that's really a cry for justice. It's a cry that justice will be done on earth as it will be perfectly done in eternity. And this cry for justice, I think about uh, a young boy with albinism, 12 years old, in Malawi this week. Malawi's in East Africa. And his name is Joseph Ketchkingwe. And it was reported this last week that he was missing. And it turns out that he wasn't actually missing. Turns out that his stepfather poisoned him and that he died because his stepfather wanted to sell his body parts to clients for use in ritual witchcraft ceremonies. Like this should not be happening in our world in 2018. And in this instance, the stepfather confessed and will be tried for his crime. But I think about in Tanzania where we work with under the same sun, the dozens upon dozens upon hundreds of people who have gotten away with this over the course of even the last number of years. And in our world, people that get away with evil, both on a large scale and on a small scale. And for me, it grieves me because it seems so often like we live in a world where justice is not done. It remains suspended, where things that are evil are not fully dealt with. And so we cry out to God and often God says to us, when you ask for my kingdom to come and my will to be done, I want you to join in that fray. I want you to get engaged and do something about it. That's why we at Jericho work with justice-focused organizations like Under the Same Sun. It's why we do the type of work that we do in Guatemala. It's why people from Jericho work to feed the hungry, to provide housing for those that uh, can't afford it because justice needs to be done. And yet, as hard as we work on all of those things, there will still remain unjust things in our world. We will not ultimately be able to make all of those things happen. And so, for me, when I cry out, to God for justice and say, Lord, hear my prayer. Would you bring your justice into those things that ultimately are beyond my control? And ultimately, we need to rest in the knowledge and provision that God is just and that he is interested in bringing about justice in the world. But as soon as I think about that, It's very tempting for me to think about and pray, yeah, God, would you do justice for those other people against all those other wrongdoers out there? It's very easy to look at the uh, crimes of a stepfather in Malawi and ignore my own sins and ignore the things going on in my life that are an affront to God. And so as soon as I cry out for justice, I'm very quickly reminded also of my need to cry out for God's mercy. To come to God with a deep sense of humility and say, God, the the problems in the world and the need for justice don't just extend out there systemically or to other people like, I know also if you do justly, I fall under your judgment. And so I need your mercy to come to you with a deep sense of humility. That's why sometimes uh, the, the words of the songs that we sing have those lines in them because they're trying to draw us to places of acknowledgement of our need and our sin and our need for God's mercy in our own lives. Trying to invite us to that place where we say, God, I come to you with humility. And sometimes in worship, that's why people express that even physically, they kneel. Or they, or they lift their hands in a posture of humility. Because they're saying with their physical posture and with their words, God, I actually need, I acknowledge my need for your mercy. I'm crying out for it. I long for it. I need your forgiveness. I need cleansing. I need wholeness. I don't want to go the way of Jezebel or the way of those young men. I need you to create in me a heart that longs to follow you, a heart that longs to do right, Heart that's clean. And so if you've never done that, then maybe today is your day to express that to God. At camp this week, we had nine kids say, Yeah, I need God's forgiveness in my life. I want to start into a new life with God. And you can do that too. I'm going to ask Ruth Ellen and the team if they would come and we're going to move into a time of responding to God in song and these songs are going to be songs of repentance and they invite us again to have God take God's rightful place not just like a warm fuzzy friend but also as a God of justice who rules as sovereign Lord over everything so let's prepare to sing and respond to God in worship to